You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. Morning, we are going to be in Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. If you do have a Bible with you this morning, we are going to ask that you turn there with us. If you didn't bring a Bible, but you prefer to um, read out of a Bible, you can find one under the seat around you. And if you don't own a Bible at home, feel free to keep that one as a gift from us. So again, we're going to be in Romans 12, verses 9 through 21. Uh, If you are able, will you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. I want to thank you guys for coming out. My name is Court. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And if it's your first time, we just want to say we're so glad that you're here. Thanks for making us a part of your week. Last week, uh, Eric kicked off our series called An Unignorable Providence. And so we're going to spend three weeks at the beginning of January here just talking a little bit more about the mission and vision here at the church and who we're called to be. Before we do that, I would love to just pray for us and ask that the Lord would speak to us through his word. So if you'd bow your heads with me, let me, let me pray for us. Father, thank you that your word stands timeless. I don't have uh, to try and grasp for my own best efforts at what truth is, but your word is truth. Jesus, thank you that you're the living truth and that you are even alive today, seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding even for us right now, for us to hear and to be changed and transformed, for me that I might be submitted to your word. And so we do ask Lord Jesus, do the work that we can't do. And Holy Spirit, thank you that you are pleased to be present with us. To open up the pages of this book and for them to be much more than just words on a page, but to be spirit-wrought and blood-bought words that our lives might be compelled and convicted and transformed. God, it is our prayer this morning that Providence would be a church that is full, not just of true gospel doctrine, but full of a gospel culture, full of people who, are, who have been transformed by the truth of Jesus. And that when others experience 
us, they experience the love that is in you. Help us in that way, God, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So this series is obviously a play on words, an unignorable providence. So the idea is that twofold. Number one, we say every single week, we make it our aim that we might make the gospel unignorable in our city. And so on one side of the sermon series title, the idea is that we want to be at Providence, unignorable to the community around us by the way in which we live. The other part to that, which I think is really important and prevalent for this morning's sermon, is that in order for that to be the case, we need God to do something that you and I cannot do alone. And if he were to do it, it would be a miracle in and through us, and it would be unignorable that the providence of God was among us. It was his provision that provided everything that we needed to accomplish what we're saying that we want to accomplish. And that is that not just that we preach, like Eric talked about last week, not only that we preach the pure, powerful gospel, because I think that is essential, and that's why we started where we started. You have to have the gospel as central, that we preach it every single week, that in our home groups we talk about it, that whenever we talk about issues that we're having in our lives, we don't bring our best advice. We don't bring good advice. We bring good news that Jesus has done something. There's an actual historical fact that we could look back on and say this has changed our lives and it's changing our lives currently and it will forever be our lives eternally. You know, that's, that's true. And we need to preach that and we need to be about that. But this morning what I want to talk about is gospel culture, which is the lives, of the, the lives of the people of God in a particular context, in a local church, being so changed by that gospel that then in demonstration and in the way that they live, it becomes unignorable to the world around them that it validates the message they preach. Does this make sense? What we do, what we say, how we act validates what the, the message that we bring every single week from the pulpit. Now, I don't know if, if when Lauren was reading that you were able to. I know sometimes even whenever Eric's preaching or someone else is preaching, we stand up to read the word. My mind's in a million different places, but we're gonna read back through it. Nine through 21, when I read through that, there's 13 different commands and exhortations in the first stanza. And all I could think of as I'm listening to that is what, what I'm not. <laughs> just hearing that and going, oh no. Like it's just kind of like, it's almost just like, boom, boom, let this be true, let this be true, let this be true. And it, it kind of just hits as, that's not true, that's not true. Oh, no, that's tough. Oh, that's trouble. You know, it just keeps hitting, right? And that's why I say that the, the play on the words in unignorable providence is that it would be absolutely unignorable for people like you and me, as screwed up as we are, for that to be true. And if you, if you don't get that from the outset, jumping into this text, you're going to be frustrated, not just with my sermon, but with the rest of your time being a part of providence, because I think the initial of what it looks like to be a Christian is to acknowledge these things aren't true. You weren't born that way. You and I were not. We weren't born genuinely loving people, abhorring evil and holding fast to what is good, outdoing one another and showing honor. We've been, we've been born outdoing one another in many ways that is not showing honor. That's not one of them. This is just not who we are. And so when you see Paul in Romans here kind of lay this out, for me, I read that and I say, wow, that's, that's just not my reality. Now, the good news is that we serve a God who is not only able but willing and eager to do the miraculous among us, which is to make us this way. Not only is he willing and able, but he's promised to those that are his, this is the, the promise of Romans 8, if he, if he did not spare his own son but gave him up willingly, how will he not also give us all things? Namely, that now in that context, I know that we can get really off base with this. In that context, what does he mean all things? In Romans 8, he's particularly talking about our glorification. 
that, that it starts with us being justified before God because of what Jesus has done, and that when God does that for us in Christ, that there's a certainty he's going to make you this kind of person. And that that's for sure. So it's not only would it be absolutely miraculous for this to happen, but God's intent on making the miraculous happen among us. So I want to spend a little bit of time talking about what Eric talked about, kind of frame before we jump in, what Romans 12, 9 through 21 is really all about. You know, uh, Eric last week talked out of Romans, uh, or Acts chapter 17, talking about what it means to be gospel-centered. And he had three major points. He said, uh, the gospel should provoke us. He talks about Paul going into the Areopagus and preaching, but he was provoked by the city of Athens. He was provoked by their idols. He said, I have perceived that you're a very religious uh, town. And his, the way in which he perceived that was because they were always talking about different gods and they had idols and they had monuments to the unknown gods. You know, they were always you know, a new thing, a new idea. And it provoked him. And Eric told us that when we talk about the gospel, we can't miss. The gospel always begins with God. That at the center of the gospel is not us. It's not a man-centered gospel, but it's a God who created us, a God who is totally self-sufficient and in need of nothing. He didn't create us out of need for fellowship. That's not what the Bible teaches. Instead, he created us out of love and grace. And out of an outflow of his person, he creates us. And then we, be, we are rebels, that we're idolaters, that we're all created worshiping, but we should worship the wrong things. And, and particularly that we worship almost anything except for the one true God. And that's what Paul comes into Athens preaching. He says, listen, uh, you got all these gods and all these monuments, but I t- I, the, the unknown God, I want to tell you who he is. There's only one, and he's the God of the living and the dead. He's the God of your fathers and my fathers. He's the God of all creation, and he starts to preach the message of God. The second thing that Eric said is that in preaching the message of God and in preaching the message of the gospel, it always crushes all other idols because all other gods fall at the feet of this King of kings and Lord of lords. And then lastly, that when we preach the gospel and we talk about Jesus bringing us near, that it always bears fruit, that we don't have to be afraid. And I just wanted to make a couple of mentions about the gospel, especially in relation to what we're going to talk about this morning. You see, Paul is provoked by brokenness. Why? Because the gospel of Jesus brings wholeness. When we think about brokenness, you know, we, we, we need to think about that at an individual level. When we look at our world, you turn on the 6 o'clock news and you can see brokenness. Uh, I just, uh, the other night, I, I have no idea why I decided to do this, but right before I was going to go to bed, I decided I'm going to watch a documentary, which, you know, I don't know what I was thinking, but <laughs> I jump in and you guys know how this goes. You're ready for sleep and then you're in for like two hours. You know, you're sleepy the next day. And, and not only that, but I watched probably one of the most gut-wrenching documentaries uh, someone had told me about it. It's called uh, One Child Nation. It's on Amazon Prime. I don't know if you've seen it. I would encourage you to take it in bits. It's just tough as nails. But it's basically talking about the one-child policy in China and all of the atrocities that came from that. And this, this gal that was born, some of you may know what I'm talking about. I don't have time to really get into it. But this gal that was born in China uh, goes back to her family after moving to the U.S. and does this documentary talking to the midwives and talking to uh, different families in these villages about what the one-child policy did. And, and basically, this one-child policy, which the state government, the communist government there, uh, imposed upon the people, it required they could only have one kid. And if you tried to have another child, that you could get your house burned down, you could get, uh, they'd come in and the state would uh, basically steal the women, steal the moms in the middle of the night, sterilize the mothers. There was uh, 60,000 abortions per midwife that would happen, and that because of this, in this culture, they wanted men, they wanted boys, and so when girls were born, many of the girls were abandoned. 
on the streets. On the, it's just an absolute atrocity. And so when we think of the gospel, it's important when Paul walks into Athens, he's not just saying, hey, I'm coming here with some, some good ideas about who God might be. It's not like going to a coffee shop and, you know, putting on some incense and talking about, you know, how your life's being changed. He sees brokenness and he knows that Jesus brings wholeness. And I think that we have to see that the gospel's meant to, to provoke us in that we not only see our brokenness internally, but then when we turn our eyes outwardly, we say, wow, what a dark world. And we have a God who loves to bring wholeness, to bring light, to bring peace, and therefore it should provoke us to want to share. You see, the gospel is at the center for us at Providence because the gospel not only represents a good news message for the world, particularly it represents that all the wrong in the world has been made right in Jesus, and we have that message, that singular message. We think that there are many good things we can do, but there's nothing as central as bringing the gospel to someone because the gospel is the only hope that can meet the brokenness of our world at the level that can change something. I, I say that to say everything's going to frustrate you at Providence if you don't get that. You know, sometimes you might think, well, why do we say the same things over and over and over again? Or, court, you know, you preach a lot of the same messages. I've been doing that on purpose. It's in, baked in the cake, baby, okay? I want that to be true because we believe that the gospel is at its heart what changes lives? So how do we make the gospel unignorable? We say that every single week. Well, in one way, we preach. We preach. And we preach like I am. We preach in our lives. We preach. We declare the gospel. We want to do that. But there's a second way. And I want to talk about that second way this morning. The church is a kingdom community that is submitted together to the Lord, offering the world an alternative culture to the madness that they've become accustomed to. That's what the church is meant to be that there's an alternative to the absolute chicanery that's happening all around them all the time. That every morning they wake up and they turn on the TV and they, what in the world is happening? And then they go to work and they're, they, they're going to recognize all sorts of crazy stuff that's happening. Or maybe they've gotten so uh, numb to it that they have to come to grips with what's happening inside of me that I feel I got all of these great things materially, but inside I feel so dull. And the church is meant to be this place that says, hey, there's a whole other way over here. There's an alternative to that emptiness. And that we don't only do it with our mouths, but that we do it in the way that we live. The church is inviting people to the table of the Lord to rest while there's the exhausting mess of the entire earth going on around them. Like think of ants on an anthill, and the church is basically saying, hey, there's this other place here where we could just quiet ourselves before the feet of the Lord Jesus, and he's going to work this thing out. Now, if this thing is true, how important is it that the culture of the church actually be an alternative? I would say it's of the highest order. Because if the church becomes infiltrated with the culture of the world, then you're not really giving an alternative, are you? And I think what happens is we, get, we begin to give a substitute. So what we say is we give a religious substitute for the world, and we just say, we'll do exactly what the world does, we'll just add religious language to it. And that only lasts for so long before that veneer wears off, and everybody thinks this is just not bringing hope. And I want to make this clear. Culture is not vision. Vision is necessary, but culture is not vision. Culture starts with vision, but vision is about what ought to be. Culture is about what actually is. I went to a, uh, an Acts 29 conference uh, that was talking about leadership. This was probably in 2013. We had just planted Providence, and I went out, and this guy named Leon's Crump is a pastor, uh, and he's a I, I rarely meet guys that are bigger than I am in almost every sense, you know, of the word, not, not just like around and tall, okay? I just wanted to make that clear. I rarely meet guys like that. I, don't rare, I rarely look guys in the eye. And this guy was at least five inches taller than me, 
he, I remember distinctly, he's wearing these pants, and they're so tight, but not because he wants them to be, just because his thighs are so big. And he's just this massive guy. He's an old ex-NFL player, Leon Scrump, and he gets up, and I remember just, he had this booming voice, so it was really easy. You just kind of are drawn to him. And I remember one thing that he said in this leadership conference to other pastors. He said, uh, you might have a great vision, but culture will eat vision alive. He says, you may have a great vision for your church, but whatever your culture of your church is will ultimately devour whatever the vision is that you're saying ought to happen. And I remember that just sticking with me saying, and me thinking, wow, culture devours vision because people can hear what you're saying, and if it's not validated in what they actually experience, then they will write it off. Because that's what most of the world experiences, is it not? People are over-promising and under-delivering all the time. And so oftentimes that's what we fall into as the church. The question we have to ask is, what are we really offering the world around us? Not just vision, but culture in the kingdom of God. And we get a glimpse of the vision that God has for the church and the culture of the church in Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. Paul has spent his last 11 chapters talking pure gospel doctrine. There is, there is no other epistle in your New Testament that you're going to get pure gospel like Romans 1 through 11. I mean, Paul's just laying out a theological treatise of from start to finish, Jew, Gentile, who is God, what has God done and created us to be, what is, who is Jesus, what has Jesus done, who has he saved and sent us to be. It's this massive, all the way from Adam, who calls Jesus the second Adam, he's just laying out this theological, it's a feast. 11 chapters of it. He ends with this great doxology, right? And then chapter 12 is, so what? What do we do with it? You know that because in chapter 12 it says, therefore, brothers, I always tell our people this, if you see therefore in the Bible, ask the question, what is it there for? <laughs> What's it saying? What, it's saying, therefore, 11 chapters, because Jesus is this, because gospel doctrine, how do we live? And he's going to fill us with these, just boom, these berating of 9 through 21. But I want to make mention that 9 through 21 comes on the heels of chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, which I think really frame the argument here. I want, it's probably going to be put up on the screen. If you want to, you can just take a left hand, turn your Bible, whatever. But 12, chapter, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, what is acceptable, and what is perfect. Lots of things going on there, right? One is the major theme of sacrifice that he's, he's pulling from the Old Testament, saying that you and I no longer are going to bring bulls and rams and goats because Jesus was the the final payment, the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, but that now our own bodies, our own lives will be acceptable worship unto God. And that Jesus has both made us acceptable before God because of what he did for us on the cross, and he has promised that not just on the basis of our faith in him and in his righteousness, but also he's actually going to make us look that way. I know that's crazy, right? It's, like, grace is way better than you think. Grace not only forgives and makes you acceptable now, it's actually going to make you fully acceptable that one day you'll stand before God, he'll perfect you. And that you're going to slowly but surely, and listen, I always say sanctification is like 
you know, Frodo up the mountain in Lord of the Rings, okay? There's a lot of downs and ups. But nonetheless, you are going to become more and more like Jesus if you're in Christ and become more and more like him, conform to his image. And that that life will be an acceptable sacrifice of worship unto the Lord. Now, there's another piece that's in here that I think is key. He says, don't be conformed to what? The pattern of this world. Or maybe another word, not perfect, but another word might be, don't be conformed to the culture of the world, but instead be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That there's a pattern, there's a way. One way to view culture is what most people do most of the time. What most people do most of the time, that's a culture, right? Or what most people believe most of the time, that tends to be a culture. If you ever wonder why there's such a dividedness in our nation, it's because we don't even know what most people believe most of the time, what most people do most of the time. It's just all over the place, right? And so then you get all this like real intense vitriol. But a culture is what most people do most of the time. And Paul says, don't be conformed to what most people do most of the time, what most people believe most of the time in the world, but instead be transformed by the renewal of your mind that you might be changed to doing what Jesus did most of the time. Now, in light of that, he's going to lay out Romans chapter 12, 9 through 21. And I believe God's gifted us all uniquely to live this kind of life. When we walk through this, to live this kind of life to create a gospel culture that validates the message we preach about Jesus. Before I jump into this, I want to say this. I think there are very few things you'll ever do in your Christian life that will be more powerful than committing yourself to holiness and sanctification. And I say that because we can be very articulate with our words, but unless our lives validate our words, it will always be hypocrisy. And hypocrisy didn't stand. Which is why Paul starts like this in Romans chapter 12, verse number 9, let love be genuine. The older translation said it like this, let love be without hypocrisy. That's the framing, right? You know what we do at Providence is every week we'll get up and say, uh, our benediction, at the end of our benediction, we'll say, love God and love people. Go love others. Now, it's, it's, it's clear here to Paul that there's a way that we might do that loving that's hypocritical. And, and I could get, probably give you a myriad of ways that that could be hypocritical. Here's one option, though. The one that I see probably most prevalently is that we would love in a particular way when we're around a particular set of people, but actually we don't really live that way among the people that we're most comfortable with. Right? And listen, that's why I said this. If, if you didn't immediately feel like, oh, no, that's me, then I would love to give you the face mic. I feel that way. Like, oh, man, how, how is it that I engage with everyone? You know, integrity is not how you treat, you know, the president when he walks in. Integrity is how you treat the lowliest of the low that no one's treating well. It's do you treat them all similarly? Do you treat them all the same with respect and honor and care? And the truth is that we don't. And Paul says we ought to let our love be without hypocrisy, genuine. And then on the heels of that, he gives us something here that I think is important to define what love is. He says this, abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Now, abhor is probably not a word that you often use with your children. Um, but to make it a more, little more simple, there, there's, an, there's an element here of disgust. But I don't really want to get into that because it could go down a whole rabbit hole. But Abhorring is hate, that there's a, there's, a, there's a hatred in our heart for evil and a clinging to, like, uh, like when your child is afraid and clings to your, to your leg, clinging to what is good. Now, in our culture that 
you know, the only thing that we can agree on is that there is almost nothing to agree on. I want to say this, and I think that this is maybe most important in this particular text. It is impossible to define love apart from understanding and having a framework of what is good and what is evil. If you don't know what is good and what is evil, you can't genuinely love people because love is wanting good for someone so badly that you're willing to act. It's that you, when you make your marriage vows, it's committing to them that I want good for you in sickness and in health, forsaking all others, no matter what happens, rich, richer or poor, in the good times and the bad, I'm going to go after what's good for you because I love you. But if we don't have a structure, if we don't have a concept of there being good and evil, then what, what does it mean that we would want good for others? And Paul knows this, so he says we have to hate that which is evil so that we can love genuinely. Because sometimes love can just be platitudes, right? It's just like, oh, well, I love you by giving you whatever you want. But every parent in the room knows that's a terrible way to love, isn't it? I mean, please, anybody else? I mean, if you guys aren't saying yes, that's scary, all right? It's a terrible way to love your kids. That, that many times as they grow and as they mature, what they think that they want and what they really need are totally two different things. And if you were to give them always exactly what they think that they want, it could just be tragic. Or like Michael Scott said, you know, Michael Scott on The Office, he says, <laughs> he says you know, I think if we had a baby for president, you know, there'd be no wars. You know, there would be no trouble. And then he goes, actually, things might be chaotic. He's like, honestly, it's a better screenplay idea than a real genuine thought. <laughs> he kind of like digresses, right? It's like, he's like, look at all the great things if a baby were present. He's like, actually, it's, and sometimes I think that's our culture's thought, right? If we had no good and no evil and we just let everybody live, it would all be good. And then he started thinking, and then people could kill without retribution. And then things like what happened in that uh, documentary in the One Child Nation, no one would think that that would be wrong. And therefore, the, the most powerful people would decide what is right and wrong and then end up harming others and killing people and no one has any sort of justice for that and he said actually it would go and it would devolve into a complete mess the idea of loving someone is basically letting and, and acting as though there is no good and evil is the most harmful thing that you can do which is why Paul says we have to be able to in the categories of good and evil let love be genuine and then he's going to give you ways and these are really practical. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to roll through these, and I want to roll through them, and, and I hope that as you listen to these, these are vision. Here's the prayer that I want you to pray with me. God, make them culture. You know, like make, make them real. And, and the only way that we, that, that we make them hands and feet, boots on the ground, real, is not by trying our best to do better. It's looking to Jesus and asking for help. Because you and I can't do this stuff. So let's, let's roll through them. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with a brotherly affection. The church, the people of God, are meant to love people familially. Now, now for some of you, you're like, I don't even like my family. That doesn't work well. Okay, well then, think of it as it ought to be, right? I, like Love like a, like a familial love. I love it whenever people will say, yeah, I love Jesus, uh, and I love my family, but I just have a problem loving people in the church. I would say to you, you need to know that you just saying, I don't like what God said in Romans 12. What you're saying is, I'm willing to be disobedient to the, to the commands of Scripture. That's all that you're saying. Because what the Scripture says is there ought to be a love like that across the board. Here's why. Because when you're welcoming someone in that has not experienced that love, what do they expect if you don't love one another? 
with brotherly affection. Well, they're not going to love me. If they can't love each other, they, they surely aren't going to love me because I do a lot of unacceptable things. But whenever they see that there's a brotherly, sisterly love among us, they feel like, man, I could be in on that. Goes on. Outdo one another in showing honor. I love Paul here. Be competitive. About what? Honoring each other. Now, I want you to think about what honoring one another means, right? Whenever you think of honoring someone, you might think of a you know, child's high school graduation. The valedictorian gets honored, right, with a speech. Or you might think at a retirement party, who's getting honored? The one who's served in that job for however many years, they're getting honored. Now, naturally, for anyone to be honored, others have to take a lower seat. In order to honor someone, you have to elevate them and you have to come down. John the Baptist honored Jesus when he said, I must decrease so that he might increase. John the Baptist understood, my ministry's got to decrease so that all would run to Christ, and it must be this way, and he rejoiced in it. He delighted in it. Jesus modeled this for us whenever he was seated at the Last Supper, and he gives communion to all the disciples, and then he takes off his outer robe, he takes the towel, and he lowers himself to wash feet. Putting Peter in the seat of honor, it's why Peter just couldn't handle it. He said, never, I won't let you touch my feet. <laughs> because he understood Jesus deserves to be the one that's honored. And I love that Jesus does that. He honors those who are not worthy of honor to give us a model. We don't honor one another because only we're worthy of honor. We honor those who are unworthy of honor because that includes all of us. And we have a culture of it that we're looking to take the lower seat. In your home group, you're looking to take the lower seat. You're looking to honor others. You're looking to speak well of others. I have found that you can honor people face-to-face, uh, -face, and that's, for some people, that's extremely helpful. Other times, honoring people means talking well about them when they're not even around. We honor one another with our speech. I always talk with married couples about this. How do you honor your husband or honor your spouse when they're not around? How do you speak of them? Do you speak of them in an honoring way, or do you vent, <laughs> you know, vent in Jesus' name? Honor them is what... Paul says, and not just honor them, he says, try to outdo one another. So in our, in our premarital counseling, what we always tell uh, new couples is your first year, try to outdo one another in showing honor. Try to figure out who can outserve the other, who can speak well, you know, try to focus on that. Because here's what we have found over not just years of marriage, but years of pastoring, is that in a marriage, you'll either have what is uh, uh, someone who is a servant and I, would, I don't want to say an abuser, but someone's a taker. So a servant and a taker, and then you have abuse this way. Or you have a taker and a taker. That's a train wreck, right? Two takers, you wonder why they hate each other, right? Or you have two servants looking to outdo one another and showing honor. And then you have reciprocity. You have union. You have love. And that's what Paul says the church ought to be. Do not be slothful in zeal, verse 11, but be fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. See, see here... Paul's not saying um, serve when it's convenient. You know, it's not, it's not a big deal. It's not really a big deal if you serve people at all because you've got your own things going on. You ever know, I, I, things are tough. Times are tough. Can I just for a, take a pause? Join the club of times are tough. I want you to just read a history book. Times aren't as tough as you think they are. If you want to know what time, I visited my, my grandmother, turned 90 years old on January 1st. She was born right out of the, the back end of the Depression, and we were talking about the World War, World War II time. 
and uh, she was telling me about when my father was born, and how my father, uh, born into the world, they lived in a, they had one bedroom, like we talk about how many bedrooms, a house, he got a starter home, three bedrooms, two baths, they had one room, and they lived out on a farm, and they, they farmed, and they ranched cattle, she had one room, and they had an outhouse, the room was the kitchen, the room was the bedroom, the room had the crib in it, the room had everything, that was where they lived, and they had an outhouse for the bathroom, and I said, well, what did you do, you know, when the baby came, what did you do whenever you worked, because now my papa, how's he going to be able to do all the farming, she said, well, I, I put him in a sling, and I picked cotton all day with the newborn, and picked, she said, and then whenever we had our second, he was old enough to be a toddler, he walked in front of me, 12-hour days, walked the fields, and she had the newborn here, and she picked. (laughs) In our culture, it's tough times. (laughs) The Chick-fil-A line was long. They're closed on Sunday. There's too many options for me. I'm decision fatigue. It's so tough. Paul's living in the middle of this Roman culture where they're kicking the Christians out of Rome. He's got an emperor that hates Christians. They're being persecuted on every side. He's been beaten up. He's been left for dead. He's talking to Christians here who have the same kind of marital struggles, the same kind of issues with parenting and kids that you and I have, and he's telling them, serve the Lord. Don't be slothful in your zeal. Serve God. Don't get home after a long day and say, I deserve this. Paul says, you fall into a trap when you start talking about what you deserve. Don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. I want to challenge us to ask ourselves, you know, I'm not saying that there's, there's anything wrong. In fact, we've done everything that we can as a church to try to develop rhythms of rest. I think they're absolutely necessary. But I also think that sometimes we're trying to rest. We haven't even taken the first lap. And we're ready for like a nap, and it's like 10 a.m. It, it, it's, it's, there's maybe a break. Maybe you need to be encouraged. Maybe you need to be prayed for. The last thing that you need to do, though, is curl up, get isolated, get alone, and say, I just need to be by myself because that's where the enemy wants you to be, all by yourself so you could be ravaged. <laughs> Continues on. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. These kind of go together, don't they? We have a hope in the midst of hard times. Rejoice in it. When tribulation comes, not if tribulation comes, Jesus told us that it will come. So when tribulation comes, be patient in tribulation. And check this one out. Be constant in prayer. Pastor Court, how often should I be praying? You know, is it five minutes? Is it 10 minutes? Is it 15 minutes a day? Is it, I don't know. Paul says be constant in prayer. Later on, he's going to say pray without ceasing. I'm just going to go ahead and be safe and say you can't pray too much. It's impossible. That's my best effort to tell you how to be a disciple. You cannot pray too much as a Christian. Be constant in prayer. I love that. We have a culture that's hopeless. We have a culture that's impatient. We have a culture that's prayerless. Paul says we're offering something opposite. We want to have a culture of hope, a culture of patience on God's timing, and a culture of dependence and prayer, knowing that our God does always come through. He says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. I could preach a whole sermon here about generosity. We're generous with our funds. We're generous with our material things. We're generous with our gifts and talents. We always say we want to be regular. We want to be cheerful. We want to be sacrificial in our giving. Paul says this is the way to create a culture, a gospel culture, is to contribute to people's needs, be giving, be an outflow. Uh, The analogy that uh, has been given to me many times over and over again is the idea of a cup and a funnel, you know. 
God pours into a cup, and when it fills up, then he'll stop so that then they, that can be extinguished, and then he'll pour again. Or a funnel, which is what a Christian is meant to be, which means that God never stops pouring in because he knows it's always pouring out. He knows that it's always being given out, and we become conduits for the mercy and grace of God. If you want to know if you serve a God of abundance or you serve a God of scarcity, the question becomes, do, are you a cup or a funnel? The funnel people know that God never stops pouring because he does, it's not like he just has a pitcher. He's, he is the source. There's never going to be a time where it's like, ooh, the well ran dry. Always keeps pouring. And we show trust in a God like that by being generous. By always seeking to give. And seeking to show hospitality is not just with your stuff, not just with your material things, not just with your money, but with your life. See, hospitality, I do not think, is just making a meal for someone. It is at least that. But it's a life that's open. It's a life that welcomes people. It's a life that slows down at Starbucks and says the barista's more than a transaction, they're people. And welcomes them in even when it ruins your schedule. <laughs> he goes on, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. He says, listen, people are going to talk, talk ill of you. You know what you ought to do? Respond by blessing them. I want you to conjure up images of Old Testament blessing. Think about that. Laying, you are in your, in your prayer time blessing people who hate you. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Man, that, you know, when, when I read that one, I think sometimes we think weeping with those who weep will be harder. I actually think sometimes we struggle with rejoicing with those who rejoice. Because if you're in the middle of a time where you're weeping and you see someone else that's getting something from the Lord, it's tough to say, mm, I want to laugh with them, I want to rejoice with them. But there's an empathy factor here. God calls us to feel with each other. When you're laughing, I want to laugh. When you're crying, I want to cry. We have to know each other and be in each other's lives for that to be true. There has to be a your heart and my chest is how it ought to look. Live in harmony with one another. Peace. Don't be haughty. Associate with the lowly. Notice he says associate with the lowly. Not like acknowledge the lowly. Associate with the lowly. <laughs> I'm just going to let that one sit. Ponder. Associate with the lowly. Who are you going to put your name with? Who are you going to cast your lot in with? Where are you going to be seated at the table with? He goes on, never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what's honorable in the sight of everyone. Not just in the sight of God, but what is honorable, what is true, what is good, what is right. What ought I to do in this situation, in these circumstances that's right? Not what's convenient, not what's comfortable, not what might feel good, not what, what might be most expedient for me personally or for my family. What is right and honorable to do in this situation? This is what we ought to do. And that we ought not to repay evil for evil. You know, the old, you know, the old Testament eye for an eye until the world goes blind idea. Right? What, what's the idea? That you and I are going to, whether we do it intentionally or unintentionally, sin against one another. Let's not try to reshape that or repackage it as not evil. Let's call it evil and then say, and I won't repay you for what you've done. But instead, we have a Savior who has absorbed it on our behalf. And therefore, I can give good. If possible, check this one out. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. He's acknowledging that sometimes it's not on you. Sometimes people just don't want to live peaceably. But as far as it depends on you, be a peacemaker. Listen to me and hear me on this. Contentious people, I don't care what your Enneagram number is. I don't. Don't be contentious. 
well, you know, I'm just, I'm just really aggressive. I don't care. <laughs> if you're aggressive, that's a way that you're reshaping your sin and saying, it's all good. You just got to deal with me. This is who I am. Oh, good. The Bible says that that part of you that is who you are needs to be repented of. In the same way that a part of me that might be not so much that way, non-confrontational, needs to be repented of when I'm lazy and slothful. But let's not call them and repackage them as good traits. You know, we can have all sorts of assessments that can repackage our sin as good traits, and then we're just like, you know, it's just kind of who I am. I just think that's a demonic lie. It's who you were. But now in Christ, you're someone new. All right. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The way in which we view revenge, how we take revenge, into our own hands or lay it at the feet of the Father. This is the good news of serving a God who actually does not only believe in good and evil, he sets the standards for good and evil. It means that there will be justice in the end. God is a God of justice and grace. That's what the cross is all about. Our God upholds good and right and true, and then he extends to those of us who are not good and right and true forgiveness. But we can trust in a good and right and true God whenever we've been mistreated, whenever we've been hurt, whenever we've been abused, and rather than trying to take it into our own hands, we can lay it at his feet and know he will make right what has gone wrong. And he will do so in the perfect way. To the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And by doing so, you heap burning coals on his head. I always love the New Testament because it doesn't allow you to define love as just staying out of people's way. It tells you to engage. I love people because I just I don't do bad to them. That's just part. That's like half. That's like ceasefire, right? That's like the minimal. I, I love my wife because I just, you know, I try not to do much. No, love is an active idea. It's a verb, right? To love someone. Meaning, not only do we pray for our enemies, but we feed the hungry enemy, we give to the thirsty enemy. And then lastly, I'll close with this last verse in verse 21. He says this, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What's the idea here? We are in a cosmic battle between good and evil. Always remember this. Gospel culture in the church is not just a tagline. It is not just pithy. It is so much more than just a members meeting line that you talk about. It is life and death. There's a battle of good and evil. And we're called to be for the good. Overcoming evil with good. We do this together, living our lives to the glory of Jesus. Why? Because true goodness is only found in the God-man Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only good one. He actually talks to the rich young ruler about this, doesn't he? The rich young ruler says, good teacher. He says, why do you call me good? There's only one good. That's God alone. What is Jesus doing? Tongue in cheek saying, if you notice my goodness, it must mean something else. Hint, hint. He's good. And vision becomes culture not by us trying harder to do better, but by repentance and faith. Faith is turning our eyes away from ourselves rather than us saying this morning, I don't want you leaving out of here saying, look at all that I am not. That's only the first step, brothers and sisters. But true culture is created when we turn our eyes to Jesus and we say, Lord, look at who you are, the full embodiment of goodness. Make me like you. The Bible says the Holy Spirit loves to glorify Jesus. And when we pray that prayer, the Holy Spirit pounces. I will come and help. 
Because our prayer is, make us like you, Jesus. Make us more like you. And the Holy Spirit says, yes, I want to make you like him to his glory, to make much of Jesus. Friends, be reminded, he will perfect you. He will finish what he started in you. That's the certainty of Romans 8. He is going to finish what he started, and nothing can separate us from that truth. So the question will be whether we work together with God to that end (laughs) or whether we're constantly trying to block the arms of the surgeon as he's doing some work, getting some junk out. My prayer is that we'd submit to his hand this morning. If you'll stand to your feet. Oh, Father, I I confess to you what I'm not. And I just want to, I just want to pray what Augustine prayed. God, would you command whatever you will and then grant what you command? Your commands here in, in, in Romans 12 through the pen of Paul, they're heavy because they, I, I know them to be good, Lord, but I know myself. And so would you grant what you've commanded here? Make me into that man. And Holy Spirit, if it pleases your heart, and I know that it does, would you make us into that people? Here at Providence, God, I pray that when people come through our doors, would they experience a hospitable people? A love that is genuine and without hypocrisy, not a trace of hypocrisy. Not avenging ourselves, but leaving it to you, Lord, a just king. Living in harmony with one another, living peaceably with all. When we sin against one another, approaching one another in repentance and forgiveness, God, let us be that people generously meeting each other's needs, opening not just the front door of our house, but the front door of our hearts to each other, to weep with each other when we're crying, to laugh with each other when we're laughing, to give a model for our children of what it's gonna be like in the kingdom of heaven. When we sit at the marriage supper of the Lamb, God, let us practice it here. Make us into that people, Lord. And thank you that you do not look at us now with eyes of condemnation because we're in you, Jesus. And we can feel the weight without it crushing us. We can feel the seriousness without it being an affliction. Thank you, Jesus, that you're making us all new again. And so we surrender to you that which is not. We look forward to that which is. Holy Spirit, may our songs of worship now be acceptable and perfect. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.